You'd open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. before you this morning, I ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would grant us the ability to have a better understanding of the incarnation. But Father, I also ask that you would help us to have a better understanding of what we cannot really understand. That though, Lord, we may learn a few more things about the incarnation, I pray, Lord, that you would hold up to all of us our inability to comprehend what took place on that day so long ago. I pray, Father, that we will be awed by your majesty, by your power, by who you are, that you are infinitely different than us, yet care for us and love us. May we be overwhelmed, Father, with all what that really means, that we will recognize both our great insignificance and smallness, and yet you deem us important because you love us and care for us. We pray, Lord, that we will grow in our awe of who you are. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us and for saving us, Father, from our sin, from saving us, Father, from ourselves. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 reads, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I spent a lot of time trying to think of how to describe what I want to do this morning. Basically, what I want to have happened is that we will grow in our understanding that there is a great deal about the incarnation that we cannot and will not understand. I want us to understand or to comprehend that, we're going, that we are unable to really comprehend what has taken place. The idea being that, that when it comes to the incarnation, it's very common, it's a very common theme for believers. We talk uh, in everyday language about the baby Jesus and God coming in the flesh. And none of that is wrong because all of that is correct. I think sometimes maybe the danger is that we begin to somehow think that we've got it. That we understand what happened. That, that we comprehend this. I think we understand some facts about it. It is very much like the Trinity. That you can understand some things about the Trinity but we don't really comprehend the Trinity. It is truly beyond us. And so I want us to understand, and most of us would never say this, and I, I don't think we actually think in these terms, though we sometimes will maybe unintentionally act like our understanding of the incarnation is almost like an actor playing a part in a movie and someone just decided they were going to play Jesus, and they then take on that, and with all the technological advantages that we have now in making, in making movies, the individual can perform miracles and do all these things, which maybe is a form of magic, though we would never say that because we know, well, no, no, it's not magic, it really is a miracle, but we don't really think about what took place. And remember when, when Jesus fed the 5,000, 
If he was to do it the way that, that an illusionist today would do it, you would have a big table in front of the group, and then you would have a, a, a basket where you have your fish and your loaves, and maybe a dark curtain covering it because there's someone underneath who is going to be pumping in the fish and the biscuits so it keeps multiplying. But that's not what he did. They took the baskets around, and as the people were taking the food, the food was multiplying in those baskets. There's, there's no illusion there. That, that's a true, real miracle. If we spend time thinking about that, I think we begin to comprehend the magnitude of that event. And that it's not just, oh yeah, he, he fed 5,000 people. And of course, as, we, as we've heard many times, you start getting into the scriptures and studying and you realize, well, it was at least 10,000, maybe 15,000. It was a very large group. No matter how many thousands you think were there, this is truly impressive. And so when it comes back then to the incarnation and what we're celebrating at Christmas, I want us to think about it. The term incomprehensible um, comes to mind. That term has changed in its emphasis over the years. Nowadays, normally incomprehensible is used to mean something that is gibberish or nonsense. We normally use the, the term incomprehensible to refer to bits of verbal communication that are impossible for various reasons to understand or to make sense of. It's kind of a, a black or white term, maybe a term of rebuke or a put down. Yeah, what you're saying is just incomprehensible, kind of a deal. But in Christian theology, generally the term is used of states of affairs or of realities. States of affairs that can, that can be incomprehensible to a degree, a matter of more or less so. In other words, we can grow in understanding and what was totally incomprehensible can become less so, though being taught, as we reflect on it, or as we gain more information, we want to know, and, and we may suspect that the claim that some matter cannot be fully understood as being evidence somehow of our failure to really get it. We live in a culture that tells itself that it is only satisfied with transparency, meaning if you can't explain it and if you can't grasp it in 30 seconds, then it's not worth listening to or it's not true, which is untrue of itself. The word mystery is a positive word that's used in the New Testament. It's used mostly by Paul. Paul talks about mysteries and normally what happens, he mentions things that were mysteries and now they've been revealed and now he explains them. But there are times when he uses the word mystery because there is an inherent strangeness to whatever he's talking about. And I believe the incarnation is such a thing. It is a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. The incarnation then is both. It is something revealed, yet it remains a mystery. Paul prayed in, second, in Colossians that the Colossian church would reach all the riches of full understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the nature and the activities of God are also for Paul inherently inaccessible and must count as mysteries, matters that are past finding out. So I want us to look at the elements of the incarnation that are not fully comprehensible, but they can to a degree be apprehended. In other words, we have some understanding. Drawn from our understanding of human affairs, we characterize the ways of which God behaves according to Scripture. Then there are those elements of the doctrine that are basically incomprehensible. Uh, but there's no reason with all of this to suspend our judgment regarding the reality of the incarnation. 
the fundamental place of the incarnation in our faith, or to modify it or to reject it. And there are many who do that, even many within the church. who They do that. They try to modify what it is or maybe even outright reject it. I've already mentioned that when it comes to these kinds of mysteries, there's really two fundamental mysteries of the faith, and one is the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity has to do with how the one God is three persons, each of whom are distinct and yet fully divine. The second mystery has to do with the Incarnation, where one of those persons of the Trinity, the Logos of God, the second person of the three, the Logos who is God, taking on human nature, both body and spirit, and becomes our mediator. His divine nature is eternal and immutable, while his human nature experiences growth and maturation. So there are some things that we partly understand. I'm not saying that the things I'm going to mention today are all there is to our partial understanding, but I do believe these things are maybe the central mystery of our faith. Some of these things are a little difficult to speak about, and I want you to, I want you to at least to understand this, that there are times when we're going through something or when you're reading something that as you're maybe listening or reading, you know you're not getting all of it or you're maybe not even getting most of it. And so at that point in time, you have, I guess, a decision to make. And oftentimes what we do is we, we just stop. I'm not getting it. And we no longer listen. Or we no longer keep reading. We just close the book. But I would challenge you that, no, we need to keep moving forward. Because even though there is maybe a, even a great deal of it that we're not getting, we need to get what we're not getting so that we can have a better understanding of what we're trying to get. You follow that? And as we know, sometimes it is very important to know what something is not as we move to understanding what it is. Even though we will never fully comprehend what it is, we will still have a very good grasp of what it isn't, and that's where the error lies. So, for example, very simply, we would say, well, what I do know is Jesus wasn't playing the part in a movie. Okay, we don't understand how all this works, but he really was a human being, and he was 100% man, and he was 100% God. Now, we say that, I say that, all the time, but I don't fully comprehend how that works. I don't understand that. I want to, but I don't want to ever pretend that, oh yeah, I've got that. So even when I mention there are some things that you're not going to get, I don't want you to think that I'm saying you're not going to get this, but I do. That, that's not what I'm doing. When I say you, it's mostly we, us. I may understand three more words than you do, but that's maybe the extent of it. But I do think that working our way through this can lead us once again to having that great sense of awe when it comes to who God is and all that he's done for us. So the first thing I want to talk about for just a few moments is in, when it comes to the incarnation, is the means of entering this relationship. In other words, what do I mean by that? So the incarnation was not the union of God with an abstract principle or with a concept. It was, but it was a union with a particular instance of a human nature, one that from the earliest moment of its conception was in union with the Logos. I'll use the word Logos a lot because that's quicker than saying the second person of the Trinity. But I'll be going back and forth because so we can kind of grasp what's being said here. So what I mean is this, is the Son did not become incarnate by adopting an already existing human fetus or newly born person. 
right? Because there's some who might imagine that, that Mary became pregnant and then God somehow attached himself to that fetus. That's not what took place. The incarnation was not the union of two separate things, the divine logos and a fetus of a Jewish boy. It was a divine person taking on the powers and the qualities of a human being, body and mind, into his own person. Separate still, but as joined as it is possible for such separate entities to be. Hopefully just that alone moves the needle, so to speak, when we begin to think about the incarnation is to at least the arena that, yeah, I'm not really following how that works. Then you're on track. Because that's what the incarnation is. The human powers of Jesus included human consciousness. We know from the New Testament that human consciousness in this union was accessed by the divine person, but that the human consciousness did not in a parallel way have access to the contents of the divine mind. Don't worry, you'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Unless that divine mind revealed it in a regular way. The union did not entail a transfer of the human properties from the human nature to the divine person. When God became man, he did so not by losing divine properties or by having them augmented in some way, but by gaining a human nature. So we know from the scriptures, it says that Jesus Christ grew. His qualities developed in a normal human way. He asked questions. He learned. He obeyed his mother. He learned a trade from Joseph and so on. So remember, so if Joseph was teaching Jesus how to do carpentry, Jesus didn't stand there as a six-year-old and say, yeah, I know all about that. You're actually doing it wrong. There's a better way to do that. That's not what went on. He learned like anyone else would learn. Now, some people can get into the... uh, well, I'm not, I don't want to say ridiculous, because sometimes these may be questions that kids will ask, and I don't really think these questions are ridiculous, but someone may ask, so then if Jesus was learning carpentry from his father, did he ever miss the nail and hit his thumb? I don't know. But if he did or if he didn't, does that change anything? It doesn't change anything. Did he ever accidentally cut his finger with a saw? And if he did, did it heal instantly? Did it leave a scar? Again, does it matter? I I don't think it changes anything. Now, if I was answering a child, I would ask them, well, what do you think? And we go through the possibilities. Well, if Jesus did, he was a human being. Do you think it hurt? Well, yes, I think it hurt. Do you think in anger he screamed at his dad? No, I don't think he would have done that. Do you think his finger would have healed? Well, yes, because our fingers will heal. And you can kind of work your way through that so they understand that Jesus was a human being, but that there are still some things we don't understand. So I don't know all the details about all those things and that it's okay. So these are human properties, this asking questions, the learning, obeying his parents, those kinds of things. These are human properties of the human nature of the divine Lagos who have become a man. In thinking about this, And the incarnation, when it comes to the character or the relationship between the divine and the human, uh, concerns willing. In other words, what we don't mean is that the incarnation was a consequence of a willing, binding agreement between the divine person, the Logos, and the human nature. In other words, it was not that as Jesus grew, 
And as his understanding of things progressed, when he became consciously aware that he was divine, and he then decided to willfully embrace his divineness. And there's been, at least, I don't remember the name of the film, I know I've, I've seen parts of it, where they portray Jesus as a little boy who is discovering that he is actually divine. And he has these powers. And he's kind of awakened to them. That's not what happened. All right. Now, did he know when he was three that he was God in the flesh? I would say the divine person did. The three-year-old little boy, in a sense, was unaware, maybe, but I'm not really sure. <coughs> we don't have enough information to answer that question because we're not given the information of how this works itself out. I just know what is. What I do know is, when he was three, he was the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. And he was a three-year-old. And we go on from there. He developed naturally like any other three-year-old would develop. I am going to assume he was a very obedient child. Because <laughs> he didn't have a sin nature. So like, unlike our children, whose first word they often learn is no, and then they say in defiance, I don't think that happened. Because we know that Jesus was without sin, right? And we know that. So I think we can say that, but again, we have to be careful. But again, we don't want to deny what we know to be true, but we don't want to go beyond in speculation of what we really cannot know. It's okay to discuss those things and even talk about them as we are really enamored with this unique individual, Jesus Christ. That's a great thing for us to be able to discuss and talk about and leave maybe many questions still unanswered to a degree. Remember that even if, there was this, even if there is this point that Jesus was becoming more aware of his divineness, the incarnation, again, was already accomplished. It was accomplished by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. The union of the two was already done. Each person of the Trinity was active in the incarnation. So the willing Lagos, or the second person of the Trinity, willing to become flesh, became incarnate in order to do the will of his Father, and his human nature was imbued with the Holy Spirit. Each person played a different role in the work. The Logos, the second person of the Trinity, is a person of the Godhead and fully divine. That fact alone, I believe, is enough to ensure the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are each involved. Each is, each is the eternal God, and such involvement is sufficient to censure, or to ensure, I should say, to ensure the involvement of the Godhead and thus of the three persons of the Godhead. John Frame said this. He said, in the incarnation... The eternal glory of the Logos, where there's a verse that reads, the glory I had with the Father, was not displayed, but another related glory of being filled with grace and truth. The verse I read in our call to worship, verse 14 of John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory that Christ had with his Father was transformed by us, or transformed for us, by the glory of the Son as the suffering servant, full of grace and truth, and of his humbling to the death of the cross. The incarnation, thirdly, gave the already infinitely wise and perfect Son of God the experiential acquisition of knowledge about the human condition. So there's this idea that as a man, he did suffer. We know he suffered. 
and we know that he learned from that. He learned experientially as a human being in that suffering. So remember that as God, God is omniscient. He knows all things. But what we also do in our, in our ability to, as, as we're told to, we can identify with Christ because he identified with us. We will say things like he entered into the human condition. He entered into our suffering. So when we pray to God and we are in anguish because of what we are suffering, whether physically, emotionally, or both, we know he actually understands there is an, an empathy there that is unique because it does come from God, but, but what's being communicated to us is not God at a distance who only knows intellectually what we're going through. He is also a God who has felt the anguish of the human condition, and he truly understands. In our day-to-day -day activities, we often feel at times more comfortable if we've gone through maybe some kind of bad experience in speaking to someone else who's also experienced the same because we feel they really understand. They may not have even better words than maybe an academic, but because they've experienced it, we feel maybe a connection that is there. And so we feel it may be even more comforted by talking to someone who has been through that. Now, I don't think that that's always the best source of wisdom because there's this idea that if you are strung out on drugs, the only person who can help you is somebody who's been strung on drugs. I don't believe that. But I do also, though, believe very strongly that in, as we communicate to each other as human beings, that there is that important connection of those who have experienced what we've experienced. And we also know, then, that what we go through as families, when we go through times of difficulty, as we experience that together, we what? Come closer together. As we experience together suffering, that... There's a there's strengthening of an emotional bond. So all of that being experienced by Christ, not only for us, but we have a high priest who understands. And so the humanness of Christ is very important for us to grasp as we plead with God and as we pour our hearts to one who truly understands, not one who just stands at a distance and nods their head because they have an intellectual understanding. That's why we, again, speak of this personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Right, we have this personal relationship with each other. You know, we, we, we believe that long-distance relationships can, can form, but those relationships always will be, the peak of that is when those two people are able to meet and be together. Right? We, we, we desire that and, and we hunger for that. And so God, who created us in his image, then the second person of the Trinity experiences these things, so then is learning these things and has, as we know, understanding of what we go through. Suffering for Christ became a reality that he tasted, and again from it he can sympathize deeply with his followers. There are times when his knowledge is distinguished from that of his heavenly Father. This kind of goes back to some things I said earlier, where he says in Matthew 24, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And that is to the return of, of the Lord. It seems to have been rare that Christ is speaking of things that he doesn't know, but it indicates that the knowledge that Jesus, as a human being, has was limited. So you notice that I threw in a little phrase there because we want to be careful that we don't diminish the perfect God-man. 
So we don't just say the knowledge of Jesus was limited. What we would say is, well, the knowledge of Jesus as a man was limited. And again, we are implying that the divine aspect of Jesus, the knowledge was not limited. But then as to the question, how do those two things merge together and exist in one person and one brain without being separate uh, from each other, I, I don't know, but it was accomplished. I don't think Jesus was lying and pretending he didn't know. He didn't know. So sometimes when we speak of Christ, we also will say, well, Jesus in his human nature, or as I just said, Jesus is a man. But we need to remember this. The humanity of Jesus is authentic. It's never artificial. It's not something that he just kind of bolted on his divinity to a human being. We are given no inkling in the word of God from the inside of what it was like to be such really a strange person. A person who is necessarily divine and who voluntarily takes on human nature. But again, all of these things, these questions I think that kind of expand our thinking about the Incarnation should cause us to maybe wonder in great awe as to God going through all of this for us, for our sake. Not that this was difficult for God, but it is truly difficult for us to grasp. But all of this was necessary for our salvation. And it truly is remarkable. I think we can see just from the few things that we've said that when it comes to these things, we, there are several questions that fall short of clear answers. What must, it, what must it or may it be like to be the divine person united to human nature? There's nothing in the scripture that would encourage such an approach. I just find a lot of silence. When it comes to the incarnation of God's eternal being, this relationship of the eternal God to time, and then the relation of God's eternal being to the incarnation. The reason for doing this is that we need to always remember that the Godhead and the divine person of the Logos were in no sense diminished or downsized by the incarnation. He became a man, but not by ceasing to be God, by not ceasing to be the eternal God. He came down to us by taking on our nature, not by diminishing his deity. You can find more about this if you really want to, on the internet, um, but what we would call the kenotic or the kenotic theories that propose this reduction in the powers of the Godhead. And there's an article in the bulletin uh, for you to look at later that speaks about it to kind of help you understand that because there are some who do lean or have embraced that idea. In Philippians, when it mentions the emptying of himself that we, that we have in Philippians 2, it's not to be seen as a reduction of who he was in the Godhead to smooth out the mystery of the Incarnation. It was really more of a veiling of his properties or a veiling of his attributes, of, of his glory and of his subordination. Remember when he took Peter, James, and John and what did he do? He revealed to them his glory. He wasn't walking around in the shining bright glory. If he was walking around that way, everybody would have bowed to him immediately because it would be clear that he was divine, that was shielded or veiled from everyone else, so that he would then, in a sense, be able to live as a man. He didn't walk around, you know, and there were never these threats that we that, you know, sometimes speculate. There was never a threat where he said to people, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't say that. that he wasn't doing that. But he kept those things veiled, again, to accomplish what needed to be accomplished for us.
When it comes to the incarnation and time, so this is where you might begin to have smoke rise from the back of your head. God is without time or apart from time. He exists timelessly, though having all points of created time accessible to his eternal mind. So, bearing in mind what we've been thinking about in regard to the incarnation, we may say that there is no pre-existent Christ with a life history independent of and prior to the incarnation. For the eternal God, there was no time when he was not incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth. Why not? Because as the Lagos, the Son of God is and is as eternal as the other Trinitarian persons are eternal. Because after all, the Lagos is God. All right, now I'm going to explain that to you. Are you ready? I can't. All right, next thing. <laughs> but if you just think about that, that really begins to, man, what in the world? All right, but remember, Jesus Christ is not a superhuman being. He's not Superman in a religious garb who's just really smart philosophically. He is God who's come in the flesh for our sake to live here, to live in obedience, to submit himself to the will of the Father as this perfect human being for us, knowing already in advance that we were going to reject him, that he would not only be called names, but that they would spit on him, they would beat him, they would reject him in every way possible, that he would truly experience the excruciating pain of this torture, and yet he sat there and willingly lived his life among us, knowing all these things were going to happen. I often think about the fact that when he was, you know, there's two stories, when he fed the 5,000 and when he fed the 4,000, and, you know, all these people were, their need at that time that was met by Christ. Jesus knew how many of those individuals, I don't know how many there were or who they were, but Jesus, I believe, knew some of those individuals were going to be the same ones a year later who were going to be screaming for his crucifixion. Remember, the Pharisees stirred the people up and they started screaming, crucify him, crucify him. I find it difficult to believe, though I don't know, but I find it difficult to believe that none of those individuals experienced the hand of God in being fed by him when he was walking around and teaching. I find it difficult to believe that none of them at least had some family member or maybe a related family member uh, in that sense who was healed by Jesus. And yet they're standing there screaming for his crucifixion. See, if I had been feeding the 5,000, I would have said, divide the evil up into 12 groups. No, 13. Here's a list of the names in the 13th group. They don't get to eat. Because I know what they're going to do. That's what I would do. They don't deserve to eat now. They'll be fine. But that's not what he did. Supposing that God freely but eternally wills to be incarnate in Jesus Christ, there was no time when the Son of God was not willing himself to be incarnate in our history. God eternally wills that he becomes incarnate in somewhere between 4 to 8 B.C. Given such a willing, there is no other life story of God than the one that includes the incarnation. However, from the perspective of the creature of the, of the, creature of the incarnation was an event in time that occurred around that time. This means that we must think about time and eternity from two standpoints. From the eternal standpoint, 
God has timelessly in his mind all that he wills to come to pass in time. And so in the incarnation, all that is involved in the Logos taking on human nature and as the mediator being the person of Jesus of Nazareth, whom the Logos assumed, that willingly or willing condescended is an aspect of the eternal life of the Godhead and so of the Logos who is God. But this does not mean that the incarnation or any other events in history are themselves timeless because it happened in real history. D.A. Carson said that would be to confuse. God eternally wills the occurrence of an event in time, and God eternally wills that an event in time be eternal. That's as close as I can come to explaining something, but it still causes to take another step back and see the majesty and the vastness, the immensity of who God is. Not just his intellect and his wisdom, but his whole being and person. There is the standpoint of time and space, the creaturely standpoint, that's our, our view, according to which the incarnation took place at a certain time in human history and lasted until the time when a cloud took the risen Christ out of the disciples' sight. That really did happen in time, and we point back to a time when it really took place. It is history for us, and those events are real and took place. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So again, from the eternal standpoint, there was no time when the incarnation was not, for the simple reason that the eternal standpoint does not have a temporal change. From the creaturely standpoint, conditioned as it is by time and space, Christ descended lived, died, was buried, and rose again, and then ascended. God is an eternal spirit existing in three persons. As God, he does not have a body, nor is his mind a created human mind, nor like one. In the incarnation, a human nature is in union with God in the person of the Logos. The son becomes two-minded. He's not double-minded, but he becomes two-minded and possesses a human body. He is... The God-man. He didn't become the God-man as he evolved in his life on earth. Right, we're not talking about you know, some kind of science fiction thing. Remember this, the incarnation. When, at the point of conception, when that took place, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, that union took place. How can we understand this? How do we even approach this? Again, the honest answer is that we cannot have much understanding of such things. There is something in history called the Chalcedonian Formula. Another article in your bulletin about that to kind of give you some background. It is confessed that Christ is two-natured, yet without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature into the other, without dividing them into two separate categories, without constraining them according to area or function. So as man wrestled with who is Jesus and what is Jesus, Again, they're describing many things that, that he was, but also what he wasn't, to help us, to, to guide us to properly understand what has taken place. The definition here summarizes the position as the distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. In other words, it is that in a true incarnation, both the Godhead and the humanity must be undiminished and that no expressions ought to be used which undermine Christ's full divinity or his true humanity. 
And so you've heard many say that Jesus was not 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. Again, we, we say that and we understand that as far as it goes, but how that works itself out, we are a little lost as to the inner workings of that. But we know that it is so because God declares it to be so. And in him resides all truth. Part of the discipline of thinking about God and his relationship to the creation or to any part of the creation, there's this strong tendency we have to possess, uh, that we possess to think of God in spatial terms or in kind of occupying space. We, in other words, visualizing what this is. It is tempting to think of God as an enormous sack or perhaps as gas, clear and translucent, encompassing all of created reality, which occupies a minute fraction of it. But just as we are not encouraged to psychologize the two mightiness of Christ, we are not encouraged to visualize, to visualize the infinity and fullness of the divine being. In fact, we are positively discouraged from doing this. We need to resist the temptation that seems at least to be part of what was behind the prohibition in the second commandment of making images of God. Remember that when um, uh, Moses was on the mountain and Aaron made the calf of gold for them to worship, when, when, when the calf was molded, he said to the people, here is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He wasn't making a God for them uh, that, that was a, another God. He was saying this is the, this is the representative of God. Who, that's not what that is. That can never be the image of who God is. That, is, that, is not, that never represents God. And it can never do that because of who God is and what God is. Some have written that maybe a way to think about this because of the inadequacy of visualizing God being everywhere at once I'll never forget I had a conversation once with a, with a uh, it was a six-year-old little boy. He's my son. And we would have off and on, just out of the blue, different theological discussions, which was actually a lot of fun. And one day we're driving down, it was, we're driving down to Abercorn, and he said to me, he said, you know, Dad, God is next to us twice. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well... When we believe in Jesus, he's in our hearts, right? I go, yeah. Then he said, God is also everywhere at once. I said, yeah. Then he said this. I know there's no way he understood what he said, but he did say this. He said, you see, God is next to us twice, and he doesn't have to divide himself to do that. I thought about that the rest of the day. Because it's true. Absolutely amazing in every way. And should give us great comfort that that is true. We are truly never alone as believers. One has written that there is a precedent in scriptures of the use of sounds or of notes to express the glory of God. We see these words in the Old Testament especially. Thunder, song, trumpet blast, the sound of many waters, the sound of the Almighty that we have there in Ezekiel. We might think of God himself as a glorious sound. This is really no more foreign to his spiritual being than thinking of God visually, but thinking in these terms might free us of the reflex tendency to think of God visually. His becoming incarnate then might be expressed by the start of another sound which modifies our hearing of the original note or the chord. Is God changed? No. 
The original sound is there, but the change is some additional feature that it comes to have. It's just an idea. I followed it for a little while. It's still kind of a bit beyond my mind, so I kind of let it go. Um, but it's an interesting concept as we think about God. The conclusion for all of us, though, is really this. Christ is our foundation. 1 Corinthians 3 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church, which is the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So if Christ is the cornerstone, if Christ is the foundation, and his person as incarnate is mysterious, incomprehensible, and only apprehended fitfully by our finite and sin-darkened minds, then at the foundation of our faith there is a mystery. This is central to the existence of the church and to the proclamation of the offense of the cross. Christians exist through a mystery, and at the center of this proclamation of the good news lies a mystery. 1 Timothy chapter 3 again says, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who was this? Christ Jesus the Lord. That should cause us, I believe, to respond even more faithfully to the passage in the book of Romans which says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. If you think about that, when you are explaining or telling the gospel to an individual, how does their heart change to believe what you are saying? Because they are naturally opposed to that. Perhaps you're speaking to an individual who has rejected it outright many times. And yet this time, when you are speaking to them, they seem to, re they seem to be receptive. What has happened? Are they now more mature because of age? Maybe that's part of it, but that's certainly not the answer. Well, has something magical happened? No. Some may say, well, they've gone through some great tragedy, and so they're now thinking differently. But it's the same dark heart that is blinded by sin that has gone through that tragedy. We know of many individuals who go through such tragedies, and there's no turning to God. There is no listening to the gospel. What has happened? It is a mystery. The mystery of the power of God. And we have experienced that already in our lives when we came to faith in Christ. We celebrate that mystery when we partake of communion together, when we speak of the perfect God-man who died for our sin, was buried, and then came to life again to never die again. And we celebrate that mystery at Christmas. When we celebrate the incarnation. That baby Jesus is not just a baby. It is a, mag a, a, a magnificent theological wonder of what God has done. A magnificent physical wonder of what has, God has done. An incomprehensible spiritual truth that is manifested before our eyes. And I trust then that when it comes to celebrating Christmas this year, at least in our hearts, as we think of some of these things, maybe there'll be a little more awe in our approach to God than there's been before. Because we will, we will think about the baby Jesus, and we will, as in the song we sang, our mouths will be shut. There is nothing we can say. There are no words that can express what we are beholding.
and what we have become and what we have been given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your greatness. Father, when we think about all that you are, knowing that we will never understand you, never comprehend the greatness and the vastness of your existence and of your essence, and then to understand that you have said that you care about us, that you created us in your image, that you have intervened in the history of man to redeem man from his sin and from his foolishness and from his rebellion. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we thought we understood. Not, Lord, that we are grateful for what we do understand, but perhaps, Father, we overestimated our understanding and then have become complacent when it comes to reading the Christmas story. We've become complacent when we, we read of the gospel or the transformed life of those who have faith. I pray, Lord, that you would move us away from this overestimation of our own abilities to understand the truth and return us, Father, to the position where we are grateful for what we do know, that we are maybe even painfully aware of the vastness of the things that we do not know. And yet, the one that we cannot comprehend is our Father. And we are grateful for that. That we can come to you in prayer knowing that the one who has created the universe out of nothing invites us to pray, has revealed himself to us that we may know you and that we are known by you. Lord, I know that we cannot manufacture this awe on our own. We, we cannot decide, today I will be in awe. Our hearts need to continually be changed by your spirit. And Father, we, we want that. We desire that. So Father, I pray that for each one here who truly desires to be in awe of your magnificence, I pray, Lord, that you would answer and honor their request and that you would fill them with that sense of awe, that we may, with greater enthusiasm, celebrate who you are, that we may have a deeper appreciation, a stunned appreciation of your gift of your Son to us. We thank you that Jesus wasn't playing the part in a movie. We thank you that even our lack of understanding, you understand and you fully comprehend, and yet you embrace us. Father, as best we can, we love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And we want to love you with more of our heart, mind, and soul as we continue to learn of you. And we ask that you will teach us. We thank you and ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.